Well, let's take a Bible and open it together this morning to the Old Testament, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you would please. We're going to continue in our study of the great man of God, David, and his life, 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we have a copy of the Bible for you to borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 219, page 219 in our copy of the Bible, or 2 Samuel 7 in your copy. You know, when I was a student at the University of North Carolina my freshman year, I had a roommate who um, started playing Christmas carols every year in late September. And this is true. And we listened to Christmas carols from the end of September all the way through semester break in the end of December. Now, you know, we didn't sing Christmas carols in the synagogue. So this was new for me. I'd never heard all these things before. And now it was a week in and a week out. I listened to Christmas carols. And I noticed... There is one common element in virtually every Christmas carol. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but it's in virtually every one. See if you can recognize it as we sing a few. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Right. How still we see thee lie. How about this one? Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's right home, there was found no room for thy holy nativity. How about this one? Angels we've heard on high. The verse goes, come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. How about hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, we're getting there, join the triumph of the skies, we're coming with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in... (sighs) Right, we made it, okay. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye too. Right. So what is the deal here? I mean, why is Bethlehem such a big deal in all this stuff? Well, let's let the Bible answer that question. When the angels appeared to the shepherds right outside of Bethlehem, here's what they said. Luke chapter 2. They said, do not be afraid for we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people today in the city of David. Bethlehem, in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. You see, friends, Bethlehem was the city of David. David grew up here. David was born here. David lived here. And the events of Christmas are connected to Bethlehem because the Messiah who was born here is connected to David. And this was David's hometown. Now, the question we have for today is, how did David get this connected to the Messiah? How did David get this connected to Jesus Christ? That's what we want to look at in the Bible today. And then we want to talk about, well, what difference does all this make for our lives here in the 20th century? So let's begin 2 Samuel chapter 7. A little bit of background. Remember, David has now become king of Israel. He has taken over Jerusalem. He's made it his new capital. He's built himself a palace there. And now he has succeeded in bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 1. So let's look. And the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around. And then he said to Nathan, the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, something's not right about that, Nathan. He said, so I want to build something more permanent for for God. And Nathan said to him, whatever you have in mind, go ahead, do it, for the Lord is with you. Nathan said, David, great idea, go for it, son. Well, 
but then God appears to Nathan that night, verse 4. And he says, Nathan, go and tell my servant David, verse 5, this is what the Lord says. The Lord says, let me summarize a little bit. I've never asked for a permanent place for the ark to be, is what he says in the beginning. Verse 8, now then, go tell my servant David, I took you from the pasture and I made you to be ruler over Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies before you. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I'll plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people, wicked people will not oppress them anymore. And then he, God skips down in verse 11 and he says, And I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, David that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish His kingdom. Verse 13, He is the one who will build a house for My name. Now, what Nathan sends... Uh, what God sends Nathan, rather, back to say to David is, David, you know what? You are not the person who's going to build the temple. Your son is. And I'm sure that disappointed David. I'm sure it hurt his feelings. I'm sure he felt a little rejected. Which is why God, in the very same breath, affirms David like he did. You read what he said here. He said, David, remember, I chose you. I made you king. I'm totally committed to you. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've protected you. I've prospered you in everything you've ever done. And I'm going to keep on standing with you till the end. God says to him, David, I love you, man. I love you. But when it comes to building the temple, the answer is no. You're not doing that. Your son is. But God doesn't stop there. He goes on from there and he says, but David, I got something else wonderful I want to tell you. Verse 13. Your son's going to be the one who's going to build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. And when he does wrong, I'll punish him. But my love, verse 15, will never be taken away from him the way I took it away from Saul. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God says to David, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a lineage for you, a kingdom for you, a royal dynasty that's going to last forever. And it's not, it doesn't depend on the performance of your descendants, whether they perform good or whether they perform awful. Either way, it doesn't matter. I'm making you the promise, verse 16, that your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this promise is referred to as the Davidic Covenant. A covenant is a legally binding agreement that one person makes with another person. And so what we have here is a legally binding agreement that Almighty God makes with His servant David. And what this covenant promises is that the eternal ruler of this world will be a direct descendant of King David himself. Now, this became part of the public record of Israel. Everybody knew this promise that God had made to David. In fact, I want you to turn over with me to Psalm 89. It's page 422 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 422, Psalm 89, and let me show you how this promise became public record in Israel. Here's a psalm not written by David. 
But look at the public record about this covenant that this psalm records. Psalm 89, look with me at verse 3. You said, God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I've anointed him. Verse 28. And I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fall. I will establish his line forever. I will his throne as long as the heavens endures. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and they fail to keep my commandments, I'll punish them. Verse 33. But I will not take my love away from David, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have said. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne will endure before me like the sun. Now, this was public record. Everybody in Israel knew this. You say, well, Lon, how does all this relate to Christmas? I mean, how does all this relate to the coming of Jesus Christ? Well, friends, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if you've got a kingdom that lasts forever, you've got to have a ruler on, on that throne that's going to rule forever. And if you've got someone that's going to rule forever, they have to live forever. And so uh, the Jewish theologians very quickly began to realize that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David had to reside in the supernatural person called the Messiah, who, because of God's promise, had to be a direct human descendant of David. Now, did that happen? Was the Messiah a direct descendant of David, like God promised? Of course he was. In fact, if you read the genealogical record of both Mary and Joseph, they were both descendants of King David. Now, Jewish theologians also were smart enough to figure out that God's promise to David meant that the Messiah had to be born in David's hometown, the town of Bethlehem. You remember the story of the three wise men, Matthew chapter 2, they come, they meet up with Herod, and Herod calls all of his, his advisors in and he says to them, where will the Messiah be born? And they said, huh, that's easy, king. That doesn't even belong in double jeopardy. That's single jeopardy type stuff. You know, look, right here in the Bible, Bethlehem, easy. Which is why he sent the wise men to Bethlehem and why he killed all the, the male babies below two years old in Bethlehem because everybody knew that's where the Messiah was coming from. Did he come from there? Of course he did. Why do you think every year they televised Christmas Eve from Bethlehem? Of course he did. And finally... The Jewish theologians also realized that because of God's promise to David that the Messiah would live eternally and rule eternally, that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. There had to be some sort of resurrection that granted eternal life to this being, or otherwise he couldn't rule eternally if he didn't live eternally. In fact, I want you to turn in the new, into the New Testament to Acts chapter 2. It's page 771 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 771, Acts chapter 2. And here, we're looking at the first speech, the first talk that Peter ever gave after Jesus went back to heaven. And I want you to see how central this idea 
of the Messiah as a descendant of David having to rise from the dead so he could rule forever. I want to see how central this was in the theology of what Peter had to say. Look what he says, verse 29. Brothers, he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that God would place one of David's descendants on his throne. Seeing that, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that the Messiah would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would his body see decay, and God has done this. God has raised this Jesus, the Messiah, to life, just like David said, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Did this happen? Did did, did God raise one of David's descendants up from the grave and give him eternal life so that he could rule eternally? Sure did. Peter says, hey, you can mock us, you can hate us, you can jail us, you can stone us, you can kill us if you want. But we saw him rise from the grave and we know he's alive. Sure it happened. You say, well, Lon, what's the point? Friends, the point is that God fulfilled His promises to David. God fulfilled His covenant to David exactly like He said. And that's why this year and every year we sing, O little town of Bethlehem and not O little town of Centerville. Because God made some promises to David that He fulfilled. Now, that's the end of how far we want to go with that particular chapter this morning, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And you know what the really important question is. What is it? That is so lame. I mean, I know it's raining outside, but you, you know, I know you can do better than that. Now, what's the most important question? All right, that's much better. You know, there's a famous story told about Huey Long, the, uh, go- uh, who was elected governor of Louisiana in 1928. And this man was definitely one of the most irascible characters ever in American politics. But anyway, the story's told that, that uh, right after he was elected governor, a man came to see his staff, and the man came complaining that when he was running his campaign, Huey Long made a whole bunch of promises, and he wasn't keeping any of them. So, so, so the, the staff came to the governor and they said, Governor, what should we tell this guy? And Huey Long hesitated for a minute and then shot back and said, Tell him I lied. Just that simple. Tell him I lied. Now, our world is full of people like this. People who lie all the time. People who break their promises all the time. But, but what I want you to see today is that God is different. What I want you to see today is that Christmas is all about God keeping His promises. Promises that He made to David more than a thousand years before those promises ever came true in time and space. And I want you to see today that that first Christmas in the town of David, Bethlehem, involving two descendants of David, Mary and Joseph, it was not an accident. It was not a coincidence. It was not luck. It was not a fortuitous stroke of fate that that happened. No, friends, not at all. It happened because a sovereign, all-powerful God, who is in absolute control of this universe, made a promise to David a thousand 
years before, and then as God always does, God kept His promise. That's why Christmas happened. God kept His promise. Now, may I remind you that it took no small effort for God to do this? I mean, even though Mary and Joseph were both descendants of David, they didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. You know that. I mean, Nazareth's a long way away on foot from Bethlehem. And so in order to get them to Bethlehem, so the Messiah could be born in the city of David, so God could fulfill His promise to David, what did God do? Well, God caused the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, to conduct a census of the entire Roman Empire. Luke chapter 2. And so from Britain to Babylon, from Copenhagen to Cairo, God put the whole Roman Empire into upheaval. God temporarily dislodged thousands upon thousands of people, all to fulfill one promise He had made to one man ten centuries before God did that. The way I see it is Christmas is living proof that if God has to put the entire globe into motion... He'll do it before he'll break a promise that he makes to somebody. He put the whole earth into motion before he'd break a promise to David. And friends, he'll put the whole globe into motion before he'll break a promise to you or to me. See, the Bible tells us, Titus chapter two, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, God cannot lie. The Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, that it is impossible for God to lie. The Bible tells us, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, I love what it says here. It says, God is not a man. Isn't that wonderful news? God is not a man that He can lie, nor does He change His mind. When God speaks, He acts. When God promises, He fulfills. All of which brings us to your life and my life here in the 20th century. What difference does this make for us? Well, can we do a little if-then, okay? Let's do if. If everything we've said so far about God is true. If God cannot lie. If it is impossible for God to lie. If... Every promise God makes, God fulfills. If that's true, then, then, then that has some enormous implications for how you and I as Christians live. It means that the promises God makes us in the Bibles, folks, aren't just sweet little aphorisms intended for us to calligraphy and put on plaques and hang on the wall. It means that those promises are ironclad covenants. That Almighty God has made with you and has made with me, just like He made with David. And it means that just like God was willing to move heaven and earth to keep His promise to David, God will not, under any circumstances, break any promise He made to you. He'll move heaven and earth if He has to, to keep His promise to you. Now, if you really believe this, if you genuinely believe this, I mean, I'm not talking about it being in your theology. I'm talking about it being in your heart. If you believe this about God, then it changes the way you live as a Christian. It means that when tough times hit, when crisis strikes, when disappointment comes along, we don't panic. We don't unravel. We don't, we don't fold up like an old cardboard box in a fire. It means instead that we go and find the promise of God that relates to our situation, our crisis, our disappointment, and we stand on the promise of God, knowing God's going to do what He said He's going to do. 
We stand on the promises of God. I love the song. I won't sing it. Standing on the promises. I cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living Word of God, I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a personal way, and you've never been connected in real relationship to Him, may I say to you that when you come into personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you get a lot more than just heaven. You get a lot more than just eternal life. You get a lot more than just forgiveness of sin. I mean, you do get all of that. And, and if that's all you got, it's a great deal. But you get more than that. You get the promises of God activated for your life you get a whole new foundation to build your life on. Suddenly, you're not having to build your life on psychobabble. What kind of foundation is that for life? Suddenly, you're not having to build your life on the foundation of the power of positive thinking. Oh, yes, I can do it. I'm going to gut it out. I can make it. That's no foundation for life. You, suddenly, you're not trying to build your life on the foundation of, of infomercial theology. That stupidity that's on television. Suddenly, there's a real foundation to build your life on. The promises of an almighty God who cannot lie. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you this Christmas season to think about doing that. Not only will you get a foundation to build your eternal destiny on, but friends, the wonderful thing is you also get a foundation to build this life on. The promises of God. Now, for those of us who are Christians, you say, well, Lon, I mean, yeah, how practical is this really? Well, I think it's real practical. When I came home from the National Wildlife hearing on Monday, you know, we'd been deferred again, again, again. So I came home and Brenda said to me, well, how do you feel about that? You know, uh, I never used to have to answer questions like that before I was married. <laughs> People would say to me, what do you think? Now, I know how to answer that kind of question. But how do you feel about this? Well, it took, you know, I got to think. When somebody asks me how I feel, it takes me a moment to think. How do I feel? Okay. But anyway, I've learned to talk that language. And so I said to her, well, let me tell you how I feel. How I feel is I feel fine. I, I really do. I've got total, I got the joy of the Lord. I got total peace. And I'll tell you why I feel fine. I feel fine because I've got a promise from God. And my promise from God is... That God's in total control of this entire universe. And that includes Fairfax County government. Now, Fairfax County doesn't believe that, but I believe that. I believe God is in total control of that board of supervisors, total control of this county government. And God knows exactly what he's doing. I said, Brenda, I'm fine. You know, I'm in total peace. I'm happy. I had my young son once, uh, not too long ago, ask me one time. He said, Dad, are you afraid to die? And I, I said, no, I'm not. He said, why not? I said, I'll tell you why. I got a promise from God. And my promise from God is John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. The person who believes in me and dies, they'll still live. Jesus said that. I said, so I'm standing on God's promise. No, I'm not afraid to die. I got a promise. You know, in the early years I was here at McLean Bible Church... I, uh, I was under some enormous attacks. Some very untrue things were said about me. Some very unfair accusations were made about me. And yet, uh, I was able to hang in here and work through it. It took years. You say, well, how did you do it? People ask me that all the time. How did you make it? I made it, friends, because I had a promise. 
from God. And I stood on that promise. Psalm 54, surely God is my defender. The Lord is the one who will vindicate me. And I said, God, I believe you're going to vindicate me. That's your promise. You know what the real truth is. I'm staying right here and I got a promise. And God did it. I'm raising three teenage boys. You talk about a challenge, huh? You know what it's like if you're raising children in this age. Talk about something scary. I'm not scared of dying, but I'm a little scared of raising three teenagers. But you know what? I've got a promise that I'm standing on. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they get old, they won't depart from it. Now, that's a promise from God. And my wife and I have committed ourselves that we're going to do everything we can to train our children up using the Word of God and spiritual values. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray with them. We're going to build the Word of God in their life. We're going to push spiritual values. We're going to provide a godly example to the best of our ability. And we have a promise from God that says when they get old, they won't depart from it. No, I'm not scared because I got a promise from God and I'm standing on that promise. We've been looking for a new house, 12 months. He said, aren't you frustrated? Well, sometimes I can get a little frustrated, but I'm not depressed and I'll tell you why I'm not depressed. I got a promise from God. Proverbs chapter uh, 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Even looking for a house? Sure. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And here's my promise. He will direct your path. I believe God's going to direct us right to the house He has for us. And if it's been 12 months, so what? God's running the timetable, not me. It's okay. But I got a promise. No, I'm not depressed. I'm excited. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. I got a promise. We've had many people say to us, well, you know, we don't see how you deal with the severely disabled little girl that you have, mentally retarded, everything else like that, up in the middle of the night all the time. How do you do that? Well, I'll tell you, Brenda and I have some promises from God. All things work together for good to those who love God. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We got some promises from God. And friends, I'll tell you, in the middle of the night, we hold on to those promises. And then I've got, no matter what happens, my, my generic promise, my one-size-fits-all promise. It's great to have one of these. No matter what it is, this promise fits them all. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, Those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. And you know, in every situation in life, what Brendan and I try to do is we try to say, okay, what course of action will most honor God where we are right now? What will most honor God? And that's what we try to do. And we have a promise that, that no matter how disadvantageous that course of action might look, humanly speaking, we stand on God's promise, those who honor me, I will honor, says God. And I want to tell you, in 24 years of being married and 28 years of being a Christian, God has never let me down on that promise. That promise has served us well. I have found that as a Christian, standing on the promises of God is the patented formula for survival, for stability, and for sanity in this world. That's how you make it through. And you make it through sane and you make it through stable. You stand on the promises of God. And friend, no matter what you are facing, I promise you God has a promise for you. He has a promise for you.
So find it and stand on it. And I maintain there's not a crisis in this world that a Christian can't face standing on the promises of God. Now, to stand on the promises of God, you've got to know the promises of God. That only stands to reason. And you and I will never learn the promises of God from the Washington Post. Uh, true. You won't learn anything valuable from the Washington Post. But anyway, we will never unearth the promises of God uh, from Newsweek. We will never bump into the promises of God on HBO or Cinemax. Not going to happen. The only place you're going to ever find the promises of God is inside the Word of God, the Bible. And that's why I'd like to point out to you that the stability of your Christian walk, the stability of my Christian walk is directly proportional to the intensity of our Bible study. The stability of our Christian walk is directly proportional to the intensity of our Bible study. That's where the promises of God are that you're going to learn so you can stand on them. When I was a brand new Christian, 22 years old, uh, the man who led me to Christ gave me a Bible. And he challenged me to read through the whole Bible in a year. I said, why? He said, yeah, you can do it. So I started doing it. And you know what I did? Every time I came across a promise from God, I wrote it down. Every time I read and went, wow, that's wonderful. Had three by five cards, wrote down the promise of God, flipped it over on the back, wrote down the reference so I could remember where I found it. And then I started memorizing them. And I did. I read through the whole Bible in about six months. And I had six hundred and some note cards of promises from God. And I memorized all six hundred in the first six months I was a Christian. This is true. You say, that's impossible. Nobody can memorize that many Bible verses. Friends, I was coming out of using dope with purple haze on my brain every morning. And I did it. Don't tell me you can't do that. You can do that. And you know what? Many people have asked me, how, as a, brand, as a young Christian, a brand new Christian, how did your life get turned around so quick and become spiritually stable so quick after all you came out of? And I tell people, it was not magic. It was not wiffle dust. It was 600 Bible verses that I memorized. It was reading the Bible in six months. God reprogrammed my brain. That's what happened. There's no magic to this. That's what God says, doesn't He? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says that when we read the Word of God, it will reprogram our brain. Now, I want to challenge you to make 1999 the year you read through the whole Bible. If you've never done it, it's a wonderful experience. And every time you come across a promise of God, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Take a 3 by 5 card, write it down, and start memorizing it. Now, you know, that, that's, that's ancient. I had a guy come up to me after the last service and say, Lon, you don't need to do that. You know, on those little, you know, the little things they run that you keep your daily schedule on the little internet connected little things. You can put Bible verses right on there and you can study them right on there when you're looking over your daily schedule right off the internet. Well, wonderful. I don't care whether you use the internet or, or three by five cards. Whatever. Start memorizing the Word of God. And here's what I want to tell you, my friend. You will see a new level of stability. Come into your Christian walk. You will see a new level of sanity come into your everyday life when you begin memorizing the promises of God and standing on them. 
Now, I'm going to do you a favor. Next week, we're going to have hundreds of copies in the foyer of the one-year Bible. The one-year Bible is a Bible that uh, takes the whole Scripture, breaks it up, and, and you read every day. It has a day, January 1, January 2, you know, the whole thing. And for every day, you get an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a Psalm and a Proverb. And in one year, if you keep up with it, you read through the whole Bible, you read the Proverbs twice and the Psalms twice. We're going to have hundreds of copies for sale in the lobby for $15 each, and we don't make one cent. So that point is not to make money. The point is to help you. And you can buy one out there. And if you keep up with that in one year, you'll read the Bible. You may say, I don't want your Bible. All right. You don't need my Bible. If you want to use your own Bible, that's wonderful. I don't care. I'm only trying to help you. If you want to use your own Bible, wonderful. But whether you use your Bible or whether you use the one year Bible, I want to challenge you this year. Make it a year where you immerse yourself in the study of the Word of God and the memorizing of the Word of God so you can stand on the promises of God. Friends, you've got to know them first before you can stand on them. Remember what I said. The stability of our Christian walk is directly proportional to the intensity of our study of the Word of God. There's no magic. It's just a simple formula God has honored for centuries and He'll honor in your life. Take God up on it. You'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for reminding us today that Christmas was not an accident. Thanks for reminding us today that Christmas was not a coincidence. It wasn't just a twist of faith that two descendants of David, one pregnant, ended up in Bethlehem, the town of David, and gave birth to Jesus Christ. No accidents there. Rather, it was you, the sovereign, eternal God, orchestrating events in such a way that you kept a promise you made to David ten centuries before. So serious are you about keeping your promises. And my prayer, Father, is that you would speak to us as Christians in the 20th century and and remind us that you're just as serious about keeping your promises today as you were then. And that as we learn your promises, and as we stand on your promises, we will become people who don't fold up every time a crisis hits. Who don't cave in and unravel every time disappointment comes. But we can weather any storm this world sends our way, as long as we're standing on the promises of God. Lord, help us to believe that in our hearts, in our spirits. And may it change the way we live. Grant that this might be a year where we learn, where we memorize, and where we take our stand on the promises of God in a way we've never done before. And Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who cannot lie. And thanks for your promises, Lord, that bring stability to our lives. Change the way we live because of what we've learned here today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.